0: Hello everyone, welcome back to History Snippets. My name is Aaron, and today I'm going to be reading a snippet from history to my friend Sky who has no clue who, what, or when I'm going to be reading about. Good morning, Sky. How are you?
1: Hello, I am clueless.
0: <laughs> so, um let's let's get into it. The Manhattan Project was established in 1942 at the height of World War II. <laughs>
1: Okay, it's one it's, of these. It's
0: a good one to start on, you know, just... <laughs> a top-secret research and development project focused on producing and the first nuclear weapons. Just we make sure that's actually recording? It is? Good? Okay. As we all know, it was a uh, successful endeavor, producing the bombs that were dropped on Japan. So let me, let me go into detail about these for a second. The first bomb, the one dropped on Hiroshima on August 6, 1945, was called Little Boy. It was a uranium-based nuclear bomb. It contained two separated chunks of uranium-235 that would be smashed into each other upon impact, and that would cause the nuclear chain reaction and the explosion. The second bomb that was dropped on Nagasaki three days later, on August 9th, was the Fat Man, and it was not the same kind of bomb as Little Boy. Fat Man was actually a far more complex unit consisting of, um, let's see, there we go, Instead of uh, two chunks of uranium-235, it had a metal sphere core of volatile plutonium that would uh, implode upon impact. So it would first be compressed, and then it would explode. Mm. So, um, now, I, I, I am a programmer at trade. I am not a physicist. And there's going to be some, some physicist stuff in this, uh, in this episode, and I am just going to have to layman's turn the shit out of it. It's not going to be perfect, but it's close enough to get the point across. Um, I expect you are an expert at everything you speak about, you have
1: done all your research, Yes. and if anything is wrong, it will be my fault. In my
0: defense, I have done a ton of research, it's just I have to put it into a layman's term because no one wants to listen to me describing two paragraphs of, like, thermonuclear reactions. So, um, I'm looking forward to getting emails on this, that'll be fun. (laughs) (laughs) So, the core that was made of plutonium cost just about $500 million to make... Mm -hmm. and was considerably more powerful than the little boy. After the Fat Man's detonation, Japan's Emperor Hirohito wrote the surrender of his country that same day. Now, what not a lot of people know is that the Allies actually made three of these plutonium cores. The first one was used in the Trinity Test on July 16th, 1945, prior to the bombing of Japan. The second one was used in the Fat Man that was dropped in Nagasaki. And the third core was scheduled to be used in a third bomb against Japan, but they surrendered before that point, so it was just kind of mute. So the third core was sent to the Los Alamos for storage and study. This core is the topic of today's snippet.
1: Okay.
0: The core weighed 14 pounds, or 6.2 kilos, for those who use a reasonable measurement system. It was 3.5 inches in diameter, or 89 millimeters. It was a solid sphere made up of three parts. The core was made from two plutonium-gallium hemispheres that were fused together by a thin ring. Now, to give you an extremely rough explanation of nuclear fission from someone who is in no means a physicist, nuclear detonations are a chain reaction. Um, When an atom fissions, it basically explodes, it splits into two smaller atoms, and on top of that, shoots out a ton of neutrons, Okay. These neutrons will shoot out. They'll hit other atoms, causing them to fission, split, explode, shoot out neutrons, which will hit more atoms, etc., etc. So, like, neutrons is the key. Okay. Mm. Um, for a fission-based nuclear bomb to go off, its core of uranium or plutonium has to go super critical. In layman's terms, that means the core has to be splitting enough atoms to produce enough neutrons to keep a chain reaction going. One of the goals of the Manhattan Project, aside from making nuclear bombs, was figuring out the precise conditions that would turn a non-critical reactive core of uranium-plutonium into a supercritical core, able to sustain a nuclear explosion. The exact amount of neutrons you need to throw at it so it would detonate.
1: So they were basically fine, fine, fine. Ah! That's how I imagine. We're, we're gonna get into that because you're not far off. <laughs> oh god. Oh.
0: Okay. <clears throat> the core we're talking about today was designed to be at quote negative five cents. That meant that it was ninety five percent super critical. It was five percent away from going supercritical so it was producing ninety on its own. it was producing ninety five percent of the neutrons it needed to explode. so all I needed okay. to do was throw five percent at it and it was at hundred and boom okay all right um At this volatile state, there was very little needed to push the core the remaining 5% it needed to go supercritical. This was so that it would be easy to detonate in the use of a bomb, obviously. Mm -hmm. All they needed to do was compress the core slightly, so they basically squish it, and it would go supercritical. The core would also go supercritical if there was another source of neutrons near it. So if you just had another piece of radioactive material nearby, that thing would shoot out enough neutrons to help the core go supercritical. Mm -hmm. Or if there was anything near the core that was neutron-reflective, so the core's neutrons would end up bouncing back at it and hitting it twice, mm-hmm. basically, both on the way out and when it comes back. <clears throat> on the 21st of August, 1945, a 24-year-old physicist named Harry Doglian was working in the laboratory with the core. He was alone, except for a security guard, 29-year-old Private Robert J. Hemmerley, who was sitting at a desk 12 feet or 4 meters away reading a newspaper. It's never good when I have exact measurements of people's positioning.
1: That's ominous. (laughs)
0: That's not marked unless there's a reason. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The core was on a table, and Doglin was surrounding it with bricks made of tungsten carbide, a neutron reflective material. Mm -hmm. He made a wall of bricks around the core about a foot away from it. Each brick he added... Uh, Around the core, reflected more and more of its neutrons back at it, pushing the core closer and closer, going supercritical. He was basically building like an igloo of metal bricks around the core. Okay. Now,
1: was he doing this on purpose, or was he a Okay.
0: Harry was trying to get the core up to ninety-nine point five percent supercritical.
1: I have another question. Did the guard know he was doing this?
0: Well, uh, here's the thing. The Los Alamos is a military laboratory. Um, yeah. Uh, I, I go into it a little bit later, but anyways, there was a ton of guards hired there. They had mm. no clue what the hell these cores were, what was really going on, because they didn't uh-huh. study physics, right? But they had gotten strict orders to basically never let that shiny thing out of your sight. They did. They knew it was radioactive. They didn't really know what the tests were, but they had strict orders to always be in the room and never let the radioactive materials get out of sight, because like people were super afraid someone would steal one of these cores or something, right? So, no, they didn't really know what people were doing, but they did know things were dangerous. So, they were all a little bit on edge. So, yeah, um, Doglian was trying to get the decor up to around 99.5% by slowly placing more and more bricks around it. But then his hand slipped. Mm -hmm. As he was passing over the core with his hand, a brick in it, he Mm -hmm. lost his grip on the brick and dropped it through the top of that igloo straight onto the core. Okay. With a brick that close to the core, like literally just leaning on it, it pushed a ton of its neutrons back at it, pushing it well beyond 100% and triggering a supercritical self-sustaining chain reaction. There was a bright flash of light, pure blue, within, uh, and within microseconds, the core began producing shitloads of radiation and heat that filled the room. Doglian in- reacted instantly, trying to get the brick out, but he couldn't reach it. Because keep in mind, if he knocks any yeah. more of these bricks over, it's just going to get worse. Okay? Mm-hmm. So, he was forced to take apart the tungsten carbide structure around the core to get the brick away. Eventually, he was able to reach in and grab the brick leaning on the core, which was glowing with heat. This is a pure metal brick, okay? Uh. Without enough neutrons um, being reflected back at the core, the reaction fizzled out and the core went back to being 95 His hand sizzled as he grabbed the scorched brick and pulled it away from the core. With the reaction over, it seemed safe, but it was too late for Doglian. Not only had his hand received third-degree radioactive burns and been utterly destroyed by picking up the brick, um, he had also received a dose of 5.1 Sieverts of neutron radiation. That's the same amount of radiation that you would have gotten if you were standing next to the Chernobyl reactor, when it melted down, for a minute. Yeah. He received that in a couple of seconds from this core. Yeah. So that's just you're just chilling next to the Chernobyl reactor for a minute, and he got that in like four seconds.
1: Imagine you're like building this little igloo. You're, you've got the brick in your hand, and just like that split second where it slips out of your, oh, your the fingers, stomach drop. Just like, yeah, like...
0: I, I, in reaction, I just shit myself before the break even hits the core. I, I can't even picture that feeling of dread. It's terrifying.
1: No, you die of a heart, of, a heart attack <laughs> before it even, like, goes off.
0: Yeah. After the incident, Doglin was transported to intensive medical care and developed advanced radiation poisoning. Amongst other symptoms were, quote from his doctor, convulsive vomiting, bodily swelling... Loss of all body, hair, and skin. So his skin fell lovely. off. Yeah. No, that... It, I, think, his, I think you need that. His I've, heard, skin I've read was somewhere. Described as, skin is important. His skin was described as sloughing off. Ah. Sliding off.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Lovely.
0: Daglian's mother and sister were flown out to be with him during his final days, but only his sister would be with him. Daglian didn't want his mother to see him. Quote, from his mother, I didn't see him. I was not allowed to see him. No one was. They didn't expect him to get better. When asked about his injuries, his sister described them as, quote, burns. The radiation burns right through the bones.
1: I'm picturing this, like, in the, at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark, when yeah. their faces are melting yeah. off. That's, that, that's pretty, pretty much That's pretty much on point. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, there are images, but this is a podcast, and you guys can be thankful for that.
1: And thank you for not sharing them with me later. No,
0: we'll we'll go over that in a second. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) It was obvious to everyone, including himself, that Daglian was not going to make it. So he consented to his death being studied. About his choice, his sister said, quote, he was mentally alert until the last day and he knew it. They told him he was the first to die from radiation burns. That's why he was monitored closely. Daglian did not allow painkilling medication to be used on him. He didn't want to be drugged or asleep so that he could help his colleagues as much as possible.
1: <laughs> a scientist to the, va- to the very end. That is
0: a end. badass scientist. Uh. They, his fellow scientists would come and visit, asking him about the experiment, studying his injuries. Quote from Daglian's sister: They very much looked upon him as almost a guinea pig. Sadly, 25 days after the incident, suffering from advanced radiation poisoning, Daglian passed away. Quote from one of his colleagues. He died of a complete breakdown of the cells. That's usually fatal. Mm-hmm. It's, that's harsh. Yeah. That's, that's basically you just melt in a bed.
1: Yeah, pretty much.
0: Yeah. It was estimated that if Daglian had left the room immediately after dropping the brick, he would have survived without an issue. His decision to stay and disassemble the reflector bricks so that no one else would have to come in and do it. Um, exposed him to additional radiation, which ultimately proved fatal. And he knew that. He knew if he instantly left the room and he dropped that brick, he would have survived, and then, like, maybe someone could have come in with a suit, but that, that core would keep on exponentially producing more and more energy, so even suits wouldn't protect him. So he basically, at the very second he dropped that brick, he's like, well, I'm dead anyways, and started disassembling. Like, he, that's so a ballsy move.
1: Was there a chance of it detonating, too, if they waited too long?
0: Maybe, they're not entirely sure. <laughs> but basically, he was just like, like, I'm already exposed to this. If I deal with this now, no one else is going to be exposed to this. So he just started taking it uh-huh. apart. Yeah. Like, he didn't even, he didn't even hesitate. He grabbed a molten brick with his hand. I mean, no oven mittens, just raw skin on molten metal. Damn. So, yeah.
1: Do you know what happened to the guard?
0: Yes, we'll get into that. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, his decision to stay and assemble the reflector bricks exposed him to additional irradiation, which ultimately proved fatal. Daglian was honored by the Los Alamos Laboratory and his colleagues. His mentor, Raymer Scheimer, said it took remarkable heroism for Daglian to reach in and correct his mistake. He knew it would cost him his life. When asked why the Los Alamos Laboratory did most of their tests with their bare hands like stacking bricks, Scheimer said, quote, Remember, we're in a hurry. <sighs>
1: That's not what you want to hear from, a, like, a high-end <laughs> laboratory dealing with explosives. With, like, the most deadly, like, bomb in history.
0: Now, here's the thing. He said, remember, we're in a hurry. The war ended. Yeah. This is, this is like, literally two weeks after Japan surrendered. They're not in a hurry anymore. This is two weeks after Japan surrendered. They don't need to make any more bombs. Now they're just doing tests to do tests. So that right there is just flat-out lying. Mm-hmm. Anyways, um... Daglian was honored on May 20th in 2000 by the city of New London, Connecticut, with a memorial stone and a flagpole in Calkins Park, unveiled by his brother and sister. The stone reads, quote, Though not in uniform, he died in service to his country. Mm. Pretty good quote.
1: Mm.
0: The security guard, Private Robert J. Hemerley, would die 33 years later in 1978 from acute myelogenous leukemia, blood cancer, at the age of 62. So yeah, it he he it got him at the end, but he wasn't exposed like immediately lethal. But yeah, it did get him. Thank you. Yeah.
1: That's pretty much what we would have expected. That, <laughs> yeah. Um to, yeah.
0: But there's a lot more pages in this document.
1: After, yeah, no, we're just we've just started.
0: <laughs> after this event, the core got the nickname the Demon Corps, and its trail of <laughs> bodies had only just begun. Uh Lewis was it
1: named the Demon Corps back then or later on? No, it was then. So they knew. They knew. They knew.
0: They knew what they were fucking with. It's not uh, like they were oblivious to this.
1: It sounds like some of them were oblivious to it.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know. It's like, I don't really blame Daglian for what happened. Because the lab was just like, no, do it with your hands. Don't wear a suit. Like, it was, it wasn't his fault. He was doing what he, you know, that's how he was trained to do it. They didn't have any security measures, you know, no remote control systems. So, like, was it really his fault? I mean, it was a slip of the hand, sure. That's just an accident. It's not like he was the one who went in there and was like, no, I want to do this with my hands. I don't want a suit. Like, it's just a lab that had that. Those were the protocols. So I don't really blame him for what happened.
1: No. And even even if you did blame him, I mean, mostly it only affected him.
0: Yeah, and we got to admit, like, in in the moment, in the heroic moment, he did decide to basically sacrifice his life so no one else would have to go in that room. So, you know, yeah, credit where credit's due, I guess. hmm Louis Alexander Slotin was born on the 1st of December 1910 in Winnipeg, Canada. He was the first of three children born to Israel and Sonia Slotin, Yiddish-speaking refugees who fled the pogroms of Russia. Even from a young age, Louis Slotin was an academic wonder, topping every single class he was in. Quote from his brother Sam, Louis had an extreme intensity that enabled him to study for long hours. At the age of 16, Louis Slotten was accepted into the University of Manitoba for a science degree. At mm-hmm. the age of 16. Mm-hmm. Smart boy. Like, at 16, I was wanking it and watching more movies and doing homework. Like, that's... At 16, he's in university. <laughs> yeah. Uh, as an undergraduate, he received uh, received the University Gold Medal for Physics and one for Chemistry. And got a We're master's in geology just for the heck of it.
1: It was fun. Side hobby.
0: Slotin was quickly offered a scholarship at the King's College London by the university, which he accepted. And he was now studying as an apprentice to Arthur John Almond, the chair of the chemistry department with a specialization in electrochemistry and photochemistry. I don't know what photochemistry is. I guess it's just like taking really good snaps or something. Um, that sounds right. At the King's College, Slotin earned a PhD in physical chemistry in 1936. And his thesis, an investigation into the intermediate foundation of unstable molecules during some chemical reactions, won him that's multiple awards. Oh yeah, that's no, that's that's a bed book. That's something you fall asleep to. That's nice. <laughs>
1: yeah, that's a brief title. That's the one That's a real that page turner.
0: Could... Yeah, yeah. Ah, yeah. nah, the plot twist is insane. Mm-hmm. I just hate how he keeps killing off main characters. though. <laughs> <laughs> On the side, Slotin took up boxing as a hobby, taking gold in the college's boxing championship. Because of
1: course he did.
0: Then he volunteered for service in the Spanish Civil War. Quote from author uh, Robert Junk. Slotin had volunteered for service in the Spanish Civil War more for the sake of thrill than any political grounds. He had often been in extreme danger as an anti-aircraft gunner. He's a thrill seeker. He joined a war not because he gave any shit about the Spanish Civil War. He's just like, that sounds fun. (laughs) After the war, Slotin was hired to work as a research associate at the University of Chicago, where he began working with nuclear chemistry. He helped build the first cyclotron in the Midwestern U.S., which is a predecessor to the CERN supercollider in France. Mm -hmm. Together with Earl Evans, the head of the university's biochemistry department, Slotin used the cyclotron to produce two new radiocarbons, carbon-11 and carbon-14. The production of carbon-11 allowed the men to prove that plant cells had used carbon fixation to use carbon dioxide for carbohydrate synthes- synthesis. No idea what that means, but it sounds really cool.
1: Uh, who who didn't, doesn't know that? I mean, that's yeah. common knowledge, right?
0: Then, Slotin started White writing several papers on the field of radiobiology, which got the attention of the U.S. government. One day, he received a letter to join the Manhattan Project, which he accepted. He helped with the production of plutonium with Eugene Wigner, future Nobel laureate, at the university and then later moved to Oak Ridge National Laboratory in Tennessee. Soon Slohten was asked to work in the bomb physics group of Robert Botcher at the Los Alamos National Laboratory in New Mexico, and he moved there in 1944. <laughs> so we got a daredevil, guy who loves thrill seeking, and he's coming to work on the demon core.
1: What could go wrong?
0: <laughs> At Los Alamos, Slotten specialized in testing criticality, which is pushing a core to its absolute limits.
1: I feel like I've heard something yes. about that before.
0: <laughs> he began working on Otto Robert Frisch's experiments with uranium, but quickly moved on to plutonium cores. Slotten was a scientist who assembled the first plutonium core, the one that was used in the Trinity test that I mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. For this accomplishment, Slotten received the title Chief Armorer of the United States for his expertise in making and assembling nuclear weapons, marked with two small circular lead and silver pins on his jacket. Harry Daglian, from earlier, was one of Slotin's close colleagues. So he's basically one of the few people in the U.S. that can put these things together, these cores and bombs, Mm. period. Like, he's the only dude. In December of 1945, the X-10 Graphite Reactor at Oak Ridge National Laboratory suffered a malfunction. This old lab, basically. Mm. A giant nuclear reactor. A regulation component inside the reactor chamber had stopped working and needed to be manually replaced. The issue was that the reactor chamber was filled with over 6 feet of radioactive cooling water, and the reactor took over a day to be turned off and cooled down. Slotten didn't have a day to wait for that. He'd have to delay all the experiments by a day. So he grabbed a basic suit, one not meant for high radiation, opened the vault door into the reactor chamber, and literally dived into the cooling liquid as the reactor is running.
1: I mean, at a certain point, there's, there's Daredevil, and then there's just... Have you
0: ever seen a nuclear reactor running? Like in an image? Those things are fucking terrifying. Yep. Yep. Okay. So
1: he walked into hell.
0: What happened next? He literally dove into the radioactive cooling liquid. So he dived down six feet under to fix the component underwater, which he managed while the reactor was running and got back out. This prevented his experiments from being delayed by a day. His reward for this was the shocked admiration of his colleagues, a reputation as a daredevil, and a dose of about one sievert of radiation, that is about the highest non-lethal amount of radiation a human can take. For comparison, workers at Chernobyl got six sieverts, so he got one. All right. This led to him suffering from extreme nausea and vomiting for about two weeks and being absent from work.
1: Good thing he got that one day. He didn't get so, delayed. To not
0: get his experiments delayed by a day, <laughs> he's a puking, vomiting mess for two weeks.
1: Yeah, no, that worked out.
0: (laughs) At this point, Slotin was feeling a bit done with working at Los Alamos as it became much more military. Quote, I have become involved in the Navy tests, much to my disgust. Sadly, he was not allowed to leave as he was the only person who knew how to assemble the cores and bombs. Quote, I am one of the few people left here who are experienced bomb-putter-togetherers. That is a direct quote from Slotin. He is a Uh... bomb-putter-togetherer. I want it
1: to be true that they said that on his name tag. just
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Uh. And those pins he got from the government.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Just like, yeah.
0: (laughs) Slotin wanted to move back to Chicago and research biophysics and radiobiology at his old university. So he began training Alvin C. Graves to take his place so that he could leave. On May 21st, 1946, half a year after the incident with Daglian, the Los Alamos laboratory ordered its personnel to continue testing the criticality of the demon core. A team of seven people were put together, led by Louis Slotten. They were to continue testing just how many neutron reflectors were needed to get the core exactly supercritical. This time, instead of placing tungsten carbide bricks around the core to reflect neutrons back at it, Two hemispheres, some half-spheres of beryllium, another neutron-reflecting material, were made. These would fit perfectly around the core, kind of just encapsulating it, Mm -hmm. and would reflect all of its neutrons back at it, 100% of the neutrons. Mm -hmm. Because it's it's a bigger core that you put around it, right?
1: So in order to figure out, like, when they reach critical, they just, like, put them closer and closer together until it's like,
0: yeah. They began by placing one hemisphere on a stand on the table and the core in that hemisphere, and the remaining hemisphere had a hole in the top where you'd put your thumb in like a bowling ball, and would be manually lowered onto the core, slowly pushing it more and more critical. Slotin and his team had uh, scintillation counters around the table that measured the core's criticality as they raised and lowered the top hemisphere. It was very important that the two hemispheres never entirely closed around the core and that a slight gap was left for enough neutrons to escape as not to trigger a supercritical chain reaction. The standard protocol was to use metal wedges between the two hemispheres, which would prevent them from touching. Slotin did not like wedges. They took time to set up, and as we've heard before, Slotin does not have time to spare. Nope. Wearing blue jeans, cowboy boots, and a lab coat in front of the audience of seven scientists... Slotin used a single flat head screwdriver to keep the two hemispheres apart. He called this, quote, tickling the dragon's tail.
1: Oh god.
0: Oh. <laughs> he's got cowboy boots on, and he's using a screwdriver to hold a nuclear bomb apart from not. Cause hitting. he ain't got
1: no time for wedges. <laughs> no.
0: it's a fucking screwdriver. Just standing there, wedging it. He knew what he was doing. He called it Tickling the Dragon's Tail. He knew that this was moronic. (laughs) I have less sympathy for him than I do for Daglian.
1: Yeah, no. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: At 3.20 p.m., I have an exact time. That's not good.
1: Nope, that's never good.
0: At 3.20 p.m., Slotin's hand slipped, and with it the screwdriver. The upper beryllium hemisphere slams shut on the lower one, entirely enclosing the demon core, and now reflecting every single neutron it shot out back as it, at it, yeah, causing a, quote, prompt critical reaction. The demon core instantly went super critical, way more so than it had done when Daglian dropped a brick on it, because that was like, oh, we're pushing out critical. With the hemisphere around it, it was. Mm-hmm. I didn't get an exact measurement, but it was like 450 percent supercritical. Like it's just, there's yeah, n- yeah. it's it's the highest this core is going to go type thing. Um, it exploded in a burst of hard radiation. The scientists in the room described that the air began to glow blue with ionization.
1: That's and then a good they sign.
0: Felt a heat wave overcome them. Slotin himself said he experienced a sour metallic taste in his mouth and an intense burning sensation in his left hand, the one holding the screwdriver. He jammed the screwdriver between the two hemispheres, pulled the top off, and flipped it down onto the floor, putting an end to the nuclear reaction. Quote from Scheimer, who was in the room, The blue flash was clearly visible in the room, even though the room was illuminated by windows and overhead lights. That's how bright the air is glowing. Okay. Bam. The total duration of the flash could not have been more than a few tenths of a second. Slotin reacted very quickly in flipping the tamper piece off. But Slotin and the seven men in the room had already received extremely high amounts of radiation. The men were Raymer E. Scheimer, Alvin Cushman Graves, his apprentice, Stanley Allen Klein, Marion Edward uh, C. Slicky, Dwight Smith Young, Theodore P. Perlman, and a security guard, Private Patrick J. Cleary it was hard to know just how bad the situation was at the time because neither Slotin nor any of the scientists were wearing their radiation detectors, so no one knew how much radiation they'd actually been exposed to. Mm-hmm. Because why would Let you me be guess. working with it? they a didn't unicorn? have time for those. No, that, you have to go into your locker and you have to pin them on and then you have to like, turn them on. And yeah, I mean, yeah. Theodore's ran out of battery and we had to find a new watch. It's just, look, yeah, our, yeah no. The big mess, yeah. It's a big mess, yeah. Yeah, so no one knew how much radiation they'd been exposed to. The only person. Yeah?
1: They stepped into a microwave, basically. Oh,
0: yes. (laughs) The only (sighs) person who didn't get exposed to radiation was the security guard, Patrick J. Cleary, who was outside the room looking through the window. Quote When the accident occurred, I saw the blue glow and felt a heat wave. I knew something was wrong, but didn't know exactly what it was. When I saw the blue glow and somebody yelled, uh, our instructions also uh are also our, our instructions are also to keep in sight of all active material that is around except in the case of a critical assembly but i'm not really sure about that i, I don't actually know what the material what the sphere was at the time or anything about it when the security guard saw the room light up and glow and everyone yelling he bolted out of the building and ran up a nearby hill where he stayed until the end of his shift smartest dude in this story i was going to say this out is <laughs> you
1: have, like, a room full of scientists and that guard is probably Second, the the room smartest up
0: blue, He's out of there. I love he runs, out, he runs up a nearby hill and he just sat there. Yeah. <laughs> he wasn't allowed to leave Los Alamos until another guard came. They're always yeah, had to yeah. on site. So he's just like, well, I haven't left technically. I'm outside. It still counts. <laughs> he's just on a hill. <laughs> uh, according to Scheimer Slotin's first words after the screwdriver slip were, quote, well, that does it. He was one of the men comforting Daglian during his last days, and he knew what was in stock for him now. Damn. That's a somber realization. Yeah. Ah, oh, well, that does it. It's just, you've come to terms with your own mortality in a single flip of a screwdriver. Yeah. As soon as Slotin left the room, he began vomiting violently, a common instantaneous reaction to intense ionizing radiation. Him and the men were rushed to the hospital. Of the eight men, Shimer, C.S. Licky, Perlman, and Cleary, the security guard, were discharged a few days later. They were the ones who were the furthest from the demon core. Slotin himself was right over it. He was put in intensive care and underwent multiple blood transfusions, but his condition rapidly deteriorated. His parents were flown into New Mexico from Winnipeg at the army's expense to be with him. They arrived four days after the incident. On the fifth day, Slotin's health had started to fail. Over the next nine days, he would suffer, quote, an agonizing sequence of radiation-induced traumas. Amongst others, severe diarrhea, failing of the kidneys, skin falling off.
1: There it is.
0: Quote, Massive blisters on his hands and forearms. That's after mm-hmm. the skin's gone, by the way. You oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's not blisters in your skin. That's blisters in your muscle. Mm-hmm. Paralyzation of the intestines. Mm-hmm. And for good measure, gangrene.
1: Oh, yeah, for good measure.
0: He had intense radiation burns, quote, both on and inside his body. And his burns were described by his doctor as, quote, a three-dimensional sunburn. It's interior, just as much. I mean, it's yeah, exactly yeah. what it is. Like, you have a sunburn inside. It, it cooks you. That's exactly. He's cooked. He's partially cooked. I mean, he's again, he aware. was
1: microwave.
0: No, yeah, he's medium rare. He's not a
1: notch. Yeah.
0: It's, a three-dimensional sunburn is a terrifying quote.
1: <laughs> that is terrifying, yeah.
0: On the seventh day, his mental conditions began failing as his brain began to suffer from the radiation damage. Later uh-huh. that evening, his lungs started becoming paralyzed, his lips turned to blue, and he was moved to an oxygen tent. The next day he experienced a quote from a doctor, total disintegration of bodily functions. Ugh. And fell into a coma. Thank, Thank God. God. Yeah, yeah. Let's <laughs> just fucking go. You're done. You're good boy. It's it's okay, man. Just sleep. <laughs> oh shit. I don't understand why they don't do They had artificially induced comas then, right? 1950s? Right? I hope he was drugged out of his tits. Like I hope he was gone for this. Uh. Like, that guy didn't want to. I didn't read anything that this dude was like, no, I want to help you guys. Look, I have no skin. I just... uh, I don't know if they had medically induced commas, but I hope he was drugged.
1: Mm.
0: He died on May 30th at 11 a.m. at the age of 35 with his parents at his side. Slotten was buried in Sheree Zedek Cemetery at Winnipeg on June 2nd, 1946. As for the other men... Alvin Graves, Sultan's apprentice, who had been standing right next to him, developed acute radiation sickness and was in the hospital for weeks. He survived the ordeal, but suffered chronic neurological and vision problems and had permanent nerve damage and mental issues. So that, it hit him, like, all in the spine and the head. Mm. I don't know what chronic neurological and vision issues is, but I don't think it's good. It didn't describe it, it just said that, which is kind of generic, but...
1: Occasionally blind,
0: like, yeah, I guess mental, like, probably memory issues and stuff, mm. early onset Alzheimer's, maybe. Yeah, um, Young, Klein, and Pearlman also suffered from acute radiation sickness but recovered. They each tried to get compensation for their damages. As far as we know, Los Alamos did not give in, only Graves got a claim for three thousand five hundred dollars for permanent radiation sickness and partial destruction of his nervous systems. He got three and a half K. That
1: seems reasonable.
0: Even in 1940-whatever-the-hell, that's still not good.
1: No, 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 that seems very reasonable. That's what <clears> you, like, I think you get, like, $10,000 if there's, like, a finger in your soda.
0: Yeah. <sighs> Three of Slotin's fellow scientists would later die from illnesses attributed to the event. Graves passed 20 years later at the age of 55 from a heart attack attributed to radiation damage. C. Slicky developed acute myeloid leukemia, blood cancer, and died 19 years later at 42. Young got a plastic anemia, bone marrow cancer, and a bacterial infection of the heart to boot, and died 27 years later at 83. He got pretty far, that's actually, like, he, 83, I mean, that's
1: not terrible. That's alright, yeah.
0: That's alright. After the accident, Los Alamos decided to stop doing hands-on criticality tests.
1: Um, oh, yeah, finally?
0: Yeah, after, like, a ton of deaths and injuries. Scheimer, one of the survivors, designed cameras and a remote control system to do the tests from here on, at a distance of a quarter mile. <laughs> like, that's that. A quarter mile is a safe di- distance, okay? Mm-hmm. That should put into perspective how fucked up it was that they were doing it hands on. Yeah. You have to be a quarter mile away for that thing, if it goes super critical, to not harm you. I was in a room with it. <laughs>
1: there's a refrigerator nearby, you'd be safe too, right?
0: (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) Many scientists clung to the superstition of the demon core. Both criticality accidents had happened because of a slip of the hand. Mm
1: -hmm. Both
0: happened on a Tuesday. Mm -hmm. Both happened on the 21st of the month. Oh my. Both Daglian and Slotin died in the exact same hospital room.
1: Shit.
0: Both died in the pre-afternoon. According to military documents, the Demon Corps was scheduled to be used in the nuclear test crossroads at Bikini Atoll. They're just going to blow it the fuck up. Like they were just, Mm. yeah. Yeah. Quote, well, obviously Slothden will not come to Bikini, because he's dead. Raymer Scheimer will come, although the date of a special shipment was postponed one week to allow us to pull ourselves together. Only two shipments will be made this time, as I see no courier for the third. The sphere in question is okay, although still a little hot, but not too hot to handle. We will save it for the last in any event if it is needed at all. But the Demon Core did not cool off fast enough, and wasn't available for use, and was not destroyed. According to records from Los Alamos, the Demon Core was melted down and used to make new cores, many of which are still being studied or sitting dormant in weapons today. And maybe one day the curse of the Demon Core will return.
1: God, I got chills at that. Ah. Okay, if it's a Tuesday the 21st,
0: don't fuck stay the away core. from
1: all labs. <laughs>
0: don't go to any, don't touch a plutonium core. So yeah, they melted no. it down, and it's basically, the demon core is in every, like, reactor core, plutonium core. A lot of dormant nuclear warheads sitting in stockpiles all over the world.
1: That's terrifying. <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that's, that's that's the demon core. Damn, um. I mean, we we make light of it. We really do. But, like, I, I got it in defense of these people. The lab is the ultimate people who fucked up. They weren't given the resources to do things any other way. Although, you didn't have to use a fucking screwdriver. You could have used the wedges.
1: No, I mean, that that's pretty much on him. I, I'm pretty, yeah, yeah.
0: But still, they weren't given proper suits. They were just doing this in a fucking room. There was no security measures or something went wrong. I mean, yeah, it's, I don't know. It's, I mean, everyone's kind of to blame here, though. I, th- I think Daglian, honestly, kind of. He, I don't really blame him. It's a slip of the hand, and he did what he. It's on the lab, really, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Los Alamos is still around, by the way. They're still doing like criticality tests and, and crap like that. <laughs> but I think they're doing it considerably safer nowadays because you know Hopefully. regulations. Yeah, yeah fingers not crossed. Building being... an igloo of bricks around a hypercore thingy. <laughs>
1: I still feel bad for those guards, man. They have no idea what, like, at he, least a scientist signed up for he had no it, idea. Right?
0: He knew he was supposed to watch the core because it was worth 500 millions. He didn't know what it was doing or what they were doing or what it could do. And, and suddenly the, like,
1: room is on fire. It's
0: glowing. The air <laughs> glowed blue. It's that so is terrifying. terrifying. Yeah, when yeah. there's windows and fluorescent lights and the air is glowing brighter than that, I can't, I'm trying to picture it in my head. I can't. I just love his reaction. He's like, I'm out of here. I'm going to set my hill. <laughs> think <laughs> that's the best <sighs> anyways that's the demon core ladies and gentlemen until next time
1: yeah bye